You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 61. Today, we're sitting down with professional landscape photographer and educator Sean Bagshaw from Ashland, Oregon, to talk about what it means to be a student of light, translating what you connect with in the landscape into a compelling photograph, luminosity masks and multiple exposure blending, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I appreciate you tuning in today and sharing part of your day learning about photography. I'm super excited to introduce you to today's guest, Sean Bagshaw. Sean was one of the many incredible instructors that I got to meet last year at the Out of Acadia conference. And after having seen many of his YouTube tutorials on Photoshop, it was a real treat to be able to actually meet him in person. And he truly is a really great guy. And if you've seen any of his videos, you you know what I'm talking about. I was so pleased he agreed to be a guest on the show. And I really think you're going to enjoy our conversation today. But before we roll the interview, let me just give you a little background on Sean in case you are new to his work. Sean Bagshaw is a landscape and travel photographer and photo educator. In the 1980s and 90s, he was into rock climbing and mountaineering, and documenting those expeditions was the spark that fueled his passion for photography. Sean's first career as a middle school science teacher gave him a great foundation for being a photography and image developing instructor. In addition to teaching and presenting at live events, he has created online video courses for over a decade now, including tutorials for Tony Kuiper's TK panel, which is a Photoshop plugin. He is known for his down to earth and very straightforward teaching style. Twice since 2008, his images have been exhibited in the Smithsonian as winners in the Nature's Best Windland Smith Rice International Awards. Sean is one of the members of Photo Cascadia, which is a team of Northwest based friends and photographers who have the goal of sharing their love for adventure, wild places, conservation, and landscape photography. In 2020, Timber Press published Photo Cascadia's photo book, Oregon, My Oregon land of natural wonders with a forward written by Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalist Nicholas Kristof. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide ranging conversation with Sean Bagshaw. Sean, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and chat with me and our listeners. Happy to be here. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Brenda. Yeah, of course. Um, so I already gave the listeners your bio in the introduction. And I, I understand that you got inspired to do photography as a way of documenting your mountaineering adventures. And you were a middle school science teacher, I believe, at the time. And then you decided to go full time into photography. So I was wondering, what inspired you to pursue photography as a profession rather than keeping it as a hobby? 
I think I, you know, I love teaching, uh, teaching middle school was a wonderful thing to be able to do. Um, it was really hard work though. And when I had my kids, uh, both my wife and I, we were both middle school teachers mm -hmm. and we had put really our heart and souls, everything into our teaching. And we also wanted to do that, uh, with our children as well, with our family. And within a year or two of, uh, you know, our children being born, we realized that, um, we weren't able to commit the time. We just didn't have enough hours in the day and enough energy to do the kind of teaching, you know, be the kind of teachers we wanted to be and also be the kind of parents that we wanted to be. And so we both started looking for other things to do that would maybe be a little more flexible with time or allow us to be around home more. And because I had been doing photography as a fairly serious hobby for, um, you know, for several years at that point and kind of dabbling on the side with it as, you know, like a little side business when teachers have their summer vacations, you know, summer breaks. Right. So I could kind of play photographer <laughs> during that period. Right. Uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to do something else, um, this seems like something I would like to do. I didn't know if it would be possible to, to make it work as a career or as a job, but I thought, well, eh, let's at least give it a try. And I was fully expecting that it wouldn't work. Um, but I felt like, ah, I need to give it a shot. And then it ended up working. So here I am almost 20 years later, still doing it. Yeah. It's amazing. So what did the early business days look like for you? Was it mostly selling prints or were you doing commercial work or a mix of everything? Or what, what was that transition like? It was, it was very amateuristic. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I am not an entrepreneur by by any sense, uh, you know, you know. I never had any desire to be in business or to start a business as a teacher. I really enjoyed that because I could just focus on teaching, and then the money part. I just had a salary, and I, I really never even connected the two because mm -hmm. I was just there trying to do my best job as a teacher, and my my. You know, as long as I didn't get fired, my paycheck came in and it didn't vary on what I did. I just wanted to do the best I could. So yeah. for me to launch a, uh, you know, a, a, a sole proprietor business like that, I had no idea what I was doing, no business to probably to be doing it. So my initial plan was that um, I did some random calculation that was, you know, back of the napkin. That at that time, I thought, well, if I could sell, you know, a large print for $300 and I could sell 10 prints a month, that would be $3,000 a month. And that would roughly replace what my teacher salary had been. Of course, that doesn't take into account any overhead or any costs right. or expenses or any of that, <laughs> you know. Um, and then, of course, uh, once I started, I don't know that I ever succeeded in selling three large or t sorry, 10 large prints a month ever. I don't think that right. ever actually happened, but that was my business plan. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I had a little bit, uh, I had some savings that I could kind of work off for, for a while and make mistakes without having to instantly make the income. Um, mm -hmm. That was an advantage that I had that I had some of that savings that my wife was very generous to allow us to dip into that so I could play photographer. Yeah. And so then I really just, once I realized that, you know, it's going to be a while if ever before I'm selling 10 prints a month and really you know, I would have needed to sell probably 50 prints a month to really cover everything. Yeah. Uh, so I just started taking any job that involved a camera, you know, that paid. So mm -hmm. I photographed pets. I photographed 
custom furniture. I did real estate and architecture. I did magazine assignments. Um, yeah, I did a few weddings and, wow. and those were all great experience and they kind of helped pay the bills and um, kind of get things going. Uh, yeah. And that was, that was what I did at the beginning. And for a long time, the kind of the deal was I had five years to make my teacher salary back, mm-hmm. which was a low bar. Cause you know, this was in the, uh, you know, this was 20 years ago and teachers don't make a lot of money and they made less then. So right. <laughs> my, my, my bar was low and I, uh, we, we had agreed I had five years to be able to make my teacher salary. And if I couldn't do that within five years, then I needed to, um, find something else to do. And right at the five-year mark, I think I just succeeded in making a, a teacher salary. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> Phew, right? Yeah. But then it was like, now I have to, now I have to keep doing that, you know? Right. Hopefully that wasn't like a one-off. Right, right. Exactly. So were you mostly marketing yourself as like a freelance photographer at that point and not less so a landscape photographer, you know? And, and when did you decide to fully focus on more landscape and nature photography? I think I always felt like I was drawn to landscape photography the most, uh, but I also felt that, you know, I needed to not pass up job opportunities. So I really was kind of marketing myself as the jack of all trades, which again, I think, um, depending on who you listen to is a really bad business move, you know, to kind of be, um, just kind of okay at lots of different things. Doesn't really actually get you anywhere. But like I said, I was just happy to have any work as a photographer. So yeah, like I said, I would, and this was in the days before social media and really a lot of, you know, not a lot of even online photo sharing type opportunities. Um, so I was doing very standard, you know, like I had an ad in the phone book and I had these little mailer cards and I got some sort of mailing list, like actual mail list. And I put stamps on all the cards and mail them out. And I don't think that ever came to anything in terms of jobs, but I live in a nice little community here and just kind of word of mouth and knowing people, I was able to slowly, you know, get people to say, Oh yeah, sure. We'll have Sean take photos of our house or, you know, whatever it was, our student or, you know, our, our son or daughter's graduation photos and those kinds of things. And just kind of inch by inch, the, the word got out, but it did, you know, every one of those that I did was great experience, but I quickly realized that kind of one by one, yeah, it's really not what I'm cut out for. It's not why I got into photography. And the reality is, is if that's what I need to do, you know, whether it was a wedding or, um, you know, photographing on assignment, uh, had some really weird assignments that I'm just like, why am I taking these photos? I mean, somebody's paying to me, but it's not nothing I cared about yeah. in terms of photography. I was realized if that's what I'm going to have to do to, to make a living at this. I'm probably better off keeping photography as a hobby yeah. and go find something else to do. So at some point, I don't know, probably after that five year mark, when I felt like, okay, at least I've got some income rolling here. Uh, how can I start, um, removing myself or kind of backing out of some of those things and bringing in more and more time to do the uh, landscape photography that I really enjoyed. And, uh, and so it was kind of just a a slow process of, and every time it was like a leap of faith, like, okay, um, yeah, I'm done with weddings. And it's like, Oh, but now that's X amount of dollars that I'm not going to have anymore. Hopefully that'll replace itself. 
And it it did. It always mm-hmm. did. I don't know how it did, but it did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good to hear. I mean, you know, sometimes in order to say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. Right. And so in order to create space for you to have the more opportunities to do landscape photography, maybe you had to say no to the the weddings, especially because it wasn't something that you were passionate about anyway, you know. Correct. But it is hard. You have to you do have to kind of put put yourself out there and be like, OK, I'm going to jump and <laughs> say no to this reliable source of income before, <laughs> you know, you see if you can land on your feet. So exactly. And, and yeah. you, you kind of do the math, too. It's like, OK, so at this point I'm doing, let's say, two real estate shoots a week, which is not enough to live on by any means. But two in a week, you know, if you've got one on a Tuesday and a Thursday, then you can't go shoot landscape anywhere that week. Right. So I'm like, yeah. I'm not really making a living off of this, but it's keeping me from doing the other thing. So either I'm going to have to shoot real estate, you know, two jobs a day, five days a week to make it pay and just commit to that. Or I need to shoot no real estate so I can actually go out and do the kind of photography that I'm interested in. Right. Um, yeah. So those kind of calculations are, are yeah, like you said, they're, they're difficult and sometimes you just have to jump and hope it works. Right. <laughs> hope, the, hope the parachute shows up. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious, you know, some people, you know, when they're at this point in their life where they're trying to debate whether they want to make that leap of going professional photographer, they worry about if I turn this passion of mine into a business, is it going to become less enjoyable? Will I, will the that passion part fade because now it's more like work or like some people myself included, I photograph less now that I'm trying to make a living out of it than I did when <laughs> when I was doing it more as a hobby uh, because I spend more time at the computer. And so I'm wondering, did you ever feel the pressures of business sort of eating away at your your passion or sources of inspiration and having to continually be producing new work or more educational content and sort of being on a hamster wheel of creativity and production? I think I got lucky, but I didn't know that I was going to get lucky. Like I said, again, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It just worked out that I really enjoy, I love the photography, but I've also enjoyed the the business part of it, at least the way I've done it. (laughs) And so those have really worked well together. Um, But I think, you know, not everyone's in that, in that situation. I also knew that I love photography so much that I was fine not making money at it, mm-hmm. you know? So if I'm doing all this and it's not amounting to an income, I'm like, would I still be doing it anyway? You know, am I, am, a lot of the photography, especially the landscape photography is like, would I do this for free? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the answer was always, well, yeah, even if my business never gets off the ground, this is still a thing that I'm going to do in my free time. Right. And so to me, that also made it, uh, you know, like a no brainer. Whereas I, I definitely talk to people. They're like, I mean, my goal is to make money. Yeah. Photography is fine, but I just want to have a business that makes money and photography seems as good as anything else. I think in that way, if that's your approach, then if you're not willing, if you're not, it's like, if I wasn't going to make a lot of money at this, I wouldn't be out getting up in the dark and walking around in the rain and doing all that stuff. Ugh. Right, and then, right. yeah, that's probably not going to work out. Yeah. And the other side is I know a lot of people that love photography so much that having to hustle or having to do something else that, like you said, diverts your attention away from your photography, that that is immediately a joy killer in the thing that you love to do. Yeah. 
I got lucky that I think I kind of fell in the middle area somewhere. And, and so that, that definitely worked in my advantage. And I think I would say that about most people I know that um, work as photographers, whatever kind of photography it is, is um, they're super passionate about the photography and they'd be doing it anyway, but they also enjoy the business part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's just kind of maybe a common denominator for for photog- working photographers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. I, I totally agree that, that the, the excitement to go out and photograph has to be there. And, and there are a lot of other ways to make a profitable business and photography is probably not at the top of the list. No. You know? And so, yeah. Yep. yeah. So or at least landscape photography, maybe weddings. You know? yeah. yeah. And I think what you said about now that you're doing this podcast and doing other things that don't involve, you know, they're in the photography arena, but don't involve actually taking photos that you take, you do less photography now than you have in the past. And right. that's definitely the case for me. I think if, if I had just been a very dedicated, um, you know, personal photographer in the landscape for these last few years, I would have photographed more. I'd probably be a better photographer for it. Um, but I'm also someone who I actually don't mind having a break from it. Mm-hmm. Like I know people that, and boy, if, if they don't get out and have new work that they're creating on a daily or weekly basis, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I haven't photographed for two weeks. Yeah. I'm like, man, I'll go six months and not take a photograph sometimes. Yeah. And I don't feel like that's a problem. I hear people like, I just, I lost my creativity or I don't know how to get inspired to go out and photograph every day. And I'm like, yeah, if I don't feel like taking photographs, I don't. And then when I do feel like taking photographs... Uh, I go out and take photographs and it's really, it's always really fun. Right. Yeah. I definitely get grumpy if I don't go out. On, <laughs> I try to go at least once a week just for, even if it's just, you know, not, not a trip, but like a local trail, you know, somewhere within Vermont or I'm pretty close to New Hampshire. So, you know, sometimes I'll pop over there um, just a day or an afternoon even is enough to feel like, okay, whew, I got, I got the scratch the itch, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so I don't like to go for months and months, but I, yeah, I wish I could get out more than I am. I have a good friend who, who's li- like you, he'll go months on end without picking up a camera and then he'll get a, an idea and then he's got, he's off to the races and he'll be super serious and immersed in it for a couple months and then it's got a break again and, and that sort of thing. So yeah. Yeah. Everybody's I think got it's- their own. Exactly. That's a lot of what it is, is just, you know, finding what works for you and doing that and not, right. no, not being too concerned about what everyone else is doing. Right. Right. Exactly. So I understand that you are self-taught, even though, you know, I was talking about a long time ago now, <laughs> 20 years ago or more. Um, so I'm curious, what were some of your sources of inspiration, especially when you were getting sort of away from the the technical side of photography and, and getting more immersed in the more creative and compositional side and, and having that as a form of self-expression? Yeah, boy, that's a great question uh, that I'm not sure I've, I've considered. I mean, yeah, I think all of that was happening simultaneously where I was still struggling to learn the technical stuff, yeah. but also having a certain... Um, I think a lot of it just came from looking at my photos and at that time, most of them were not, not very good, at least as far as what I was, you know, they were, they were pictures of things. They Mm -hmm. were recording things, they were documenting things, whatever. 
but there were certain qualities that would show up either in my photos or other photos that I would see. And, and eventually I did start looking at other people's photos when I realized that, you know, landscape photography was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I would just notice certain elements in imagery that spoke to me. Uh, and then it was a lot of, I think, m- mimicry, number one, uh, mm-hmm. like going out and trying to figure out like, so what is it that creates that element in a photograph and, you know, trying to narrow it down. Is it light? Is it some sort of camera technique? Is it composition? Is it anything, you know, and who's, who is achieving that, um, something that interests me and what do they have to say about it? What are their ideas about it? And a lot of it came through that period, I think of realizing that the idea of creative photography was a thing that other people were interested in creative landscape photographers to say, and there was a community of people talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of just informal conversations with other photographers, some of who were kind of, some of whom were kind of in my position of, trying to learn and then also being in a position to communicate with some people who um, had already, you know, were somewhat established already, even early on, you know, I was able to have some conversations with, um, you know, some of the people who came up as film photographers in, you know, maybe the seventies and eighties and nineties and to get their input. I did a lot of reading. So Galen Rowell and various folks, but I was also able to meet folks like Art Wolf and John Shaw and um, some other folks like that. Mm -hmm. So getting that kind of combination of speaking to people who were in the same stage in the process of me. And then also some of these more experienced folks and the internet, I think really played into that at that stage in the game. Uh, That was right when early image sharing and kind of, forums were coming on the internet. So having that as a place to, to talk and get ideas and share ideas and critique each other was really valuable. Yeah. Well, I don't know how people did it before that. Right. (laughs) I guess visit galleries and talk with the artists and, and that sort of thing. I don't really know reading books as well, but Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to describe. I think, you know, figuring out, how you're translating what you're experiencing in, th- in the landscape into a photograph so that somebody else can then experience that level of expression that, that, that you're trying to portray. I, I find it really challenging to put it into words. You know, it's, I feel it when I've been able to create a photograph like that, or I can feel it in somebody else's photograph, but it's hard for me anyway to describe it in words. I'm right with you. That's exactly where I'm at. And I say that all the time. And actually I get asked to speak on that topic, you know, like putting your ideas and thoughts and inspirations and feelings into like some sort of verbal you know, a presentation. Yeah. And some people are really, really good at that. I know um, a lot of people that, you know, the two of us know and, and uh, you know, work with are very good at that. And I really admire that quality. That's not a quality I have. And so I have to tell people, you know, that's really not my wheelhouse. <laughs> I would stumble through that and not say anything coherent. Right. And you don't want that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But I, yeah. but I totally identify with what you said. It's like, but it's not that I don't, I don't have something to say about those things. It's just not words. I feel like, yeah, like you said, I know it when I see it or when I feel it. And 
the that inside of me is there and it's very strong and and definite and i just don't have a good way to communicate it right and i appreciate it when other people do because i'm like yeah that right (laughs) what they just said (laughs) right that's everything that's going on in here that i just don't have the words for right yeah well, and you actually touched upon this in, a, in an article that you wrote for Photo Cascadia, uh, which is the group that you're a part of. And I talked about that in the introduction. But um, so I'll just share the quote because I really liked it. And, and we can you can expand on it if you'd like. But I think it's along these lines. So you wrote that mystery, drama, effort, challenge, fear, discovery, joy, peace, anxiety, exhilaration, freedom, loneliness, vertigo are all human sensations and sentiments more personal and complex than a mountain, lake, or forest. Yet all can be communicated through a picture of a mountain, lake, or forest. And I love that. Like, yes, exactly. And, <laughs> and how is so hard to, to unpack, you know? And I think that that is that, that like little nugget that a lot of people are trying to figure out. You know, they may know how to create a technically sound photograph but it's that that little thing that you just described in that quote that connects someone to a photograph that is hard to achieve you know, especially when you're learning and trying to expand your own photography in that way and you know so and obviously you you've led numerous workshops and you have a YouTube channel with tutorials on that we'll talk about in a moment but I'm curious when you're out in the field with somebody how do you help them to try to tap into that? It is challenging. Um, I mean, that's probably for me, the most difficult thing to try to teach. Uh, and some people just have it. I think, you know, like you and I just said, we just kind of feel it. We know it when we know it, but it's hard to define. And I see people like that when I'm teaching and they're, they just have this thing that they've, feel real strongly and they're working towards it and they're going to figure it out and they may not even be able to explain it to me. But then I have a definitely run into people that say, well, I want to take a picture of this tree, but I don't, you know, it's, it's a tree. What am I supposed to do with that? And I said, well, why, why that tree? Yeah. And this is the thing that I've seems to be the most helpful, at least for me working with people is say, so, you know, you, you could have pointed your camera anywhere. You pick that tree. What is it about that tree that, you, you know, that's where your camera is pointed instead of somewhere else. And if they can't say, you know, I don't know, I just, I was walking down and said tree, I could have been <laughs> rock just as well. I said, well, then maybe keep looking, you know, find yeah. something that you do have a reason for. But if you do have a reason, if they say to me, well, I really like how the light is kind of you know, it's backlighting the leaves and they have kind of this wonderful glow and they're also, you know, they've got this nice slight motion to them. I just really, right now of everything I'm looking at, that's just drawing my attention. I said, okay, so now it's no longer a photo of a tree. It's a photo of everything you just said. Right. So make, how are you going to photograph the light causing the glow and how are you going to photograph that motion? Mm-hmm. Forget that it's a tree. Right. And make your photograph about the reason why you, you, you know, why it caught your attention in the first place. Or, you know, sometimes it's a feeling, well, you know, there's a tree there, but that tree is connecting with something that I'm feeling and I'm feeling a little, you know, I'm happy or I'm 
sad or I'm lonely or, you know, I, I'm really cold and fed up with being out here in the dark and the rain, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, so now, and somehow you connected that with this tree, but now that's your photograph is whatever those feelings are. Forget that it's a tree. Just how are you going to photograph that feeling in the tree? Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's the best I've come up with. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I, I'm imagining different things as you're talking. And um, yesterday I was driving to town and there's this section of the road that leads from our house to town that has all these young saplings. Like the leaves just came out in the last like week and a half here in Vermont. And um, so everything is this beautiful shade of green. There's like a diversity of, of greens out there. And there's this one swath of, um, I actually don't even, I should know what kind of tree it is, but the, the leaves are just about halfway emerged. And so they're that light green mm -hmm. and they were all backlit and it was a super breezy day. And I didn't have my camera with me, but I kept being like, ah, oh, I wish I could pull over and figure out how to photograph that, you know? And um, so I, I like how you, how you went from, this is the subject to, this is what the photograph is about or right. yeah. And, and honing in on, and then it, when you're thinking of things like backlight, color, texture, movement, whatever, you can from that reverse engineer whatever techniques you need to be using in order to construct the photograph. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of my photography has come from a place, you know, like I have just from way before I was taking photos, just loved and been so exuberant and, um, you know, just awed by being in the mountains or being in an incredible forest. And so, and I strongly feel that when I'm out, uh, you know, in, in the landscape, those strong feelings I'm having, you know, and sometimes it's, yeah, you know, it's pain and suffering if I've hiked 15 miles carrying a heavy backpack and, you know, whatever, whatever those experiences are, that's what I want my photographs to, to be about. Mm -hmm. Um, and because I love it so much and because I am so joyful a lot of the time and just, um, just awestruck by the things I'm seeing, you know, whether it's the, you know, the dimension and the depth of the landscape being up high, looking down, whether it's being at the bottom of a small redwood tree that's, you know, just feel so, so insignificant below that or whatever the, all that stuff is. Um, that's what I hope. And I think comes out in a lot of my photographs and it's not, and the one hand, it's not very deep. Like it's not really a lot of, you know, again, uh, you know, I'm not trying to say anything important really. And yet to me, it's, it's all the things that are the most important. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I get that. Um, do you know, Brene Brown, um, mm -hmm. yeah. So she wrote a book, she's written a lot of books, but one of the books she wrote recently came out is, um, I think it's called Atlas of the Heart. Mm. And in it, she talks about how awe is this emotion or sensation that we experience when we feel really small and, and amazed by, you know, the universe, whatever it is, but that that can lead to curiosity and that curiosity is that desire, we sort of take that uh, excitement of the awe, the wonder of that, and then turn it into, well, I need to know more. You know, it brings in this element of discovery and exploration and, and, and through curiosity. And, um, and I, I like 
to keep that in mind when I'm doing photography, because I feel like curiosity plays a big role in that of, of like you were saying earlier, like, what is it about this tree that I like? Um, and I think the source of that is awe, which is what you were describing in your experience. I really like that idea. Um, and I think that totally applies. Uh, yeah. I mean, the exploration to me and the discovery and the finding out is what keeps it interesting. Um, yeah, I rarely go out with an idea of, okay, this is the photograph I'm going to take. Yeah. I always go out with, let's go see what's out there. And a lot of times I don't even take a photo. You know, there aren't any photos that occur to me. Mm -hmm. um, not that there aren't any, but they just, you know, didn't come together for whatever reason. But almost always the photos that I like the most are, you know, were complete surprises to me and came from this. And I guess I'll see people that go to a place who, for whatever reason, and we don't all have to love it. <laughs> um, but, you know, they don't love being out in the out in the landscape. But they do have this idea of, I saw this picture somewhere, I saw this place, and I want to go take that picture. Mm -hmm. And so they get there, and, you know, even on workshops and things, and they'll, they'll find that spot, and then they'll stay there and not move for the whole time. And I am constantly moving, you know? And even when I do have that sort of preconceived, like, oh, this is something I'm going to see when I get there, I'll go see it, take that photo, and then I'm like, but what's around the corner? Yeah. Or what's up this hill? How what is how does the landscape change if I get higher or lower? Or, right. you know, if I turn around and look behind me, what's back there? And I'm constantly moving around. And that's one of the most challenging things I find when teaching is like to get people to move and yeah. look and <laughs> and ask, you know, like what is around that corner? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you are out there, I mean, I feel like um there's so many different things that could draw your attention in and make you want to keep exploring or pull your camera out to, to create a photograph. But do you have any compositional elements that you are particularly drawn to that you're sort of seeking, looking for when you're scanning through the landscape, looking for compositions? I, there are definitely things that call to me. Um, I don't know that I'm specifically looking for them, but they're the things that I end up findings because yeah. that's what, you know, it, when, when I'm looking at everything that's there, where do I end up kind of um, resting on light is usually the first one. So um, if light is doing something interesting somewhere in the scene, then I'm usually trying to figure out what can I photograph that is in interaction with that light. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the first thing that's occurring to me. Um, but definitely um, there's a lot of more physical um, elements that I think also speak to me. Um, and some, some amount of kind of orderliness, I think is, you know, like you just stand in certain places and things kind of fall into order. You know, they, they don't overlap each other or they lap overlap each other in a, in a way that's visually interesting or, 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 you know, has some sort of organization to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I also look for things that feel dimensional, um, because I'm having this immersive experience in, in the landscape. Uh, I'm trying to figure out, okay, in this two dimensional image, you know, where, where are the elements going to be that are going to give it as much feeling of depth and dimension as possible. That almost like you could go into it, mm -hmm. uh, into this, into this photo. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, obviously we know all the, 
the kind of the cliche things that create that leading lines and, you know, corridors and um, S curves and all that stuff. Um, right. But again, I'm usually not thinking about S curves or leading lines. I'm just thinking of what's going to draw me into this once it's a photograph, once it's two dimensional, where can I place the camera that'll, that'll make that effect the most effective. Mm-hmm. And then later I'll notice, oh, it's because, yeah, look at that leading line and that S curve and the way, you know, the framing and the simplicity or whatever. Right. And that's usually, I realize that afterwards, but it always comes back to those things. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's, I think we're, we're drawn to those elements subconsciously anyway, you know? And so maybe that goes back to like what we were saying earlier with, well, this just feels good for some reason. I can't really describe it yet, but you know, it works. And then later on you can spend the time to sort of dissect it out and be like, oh, well, there's a leading line that wasn't very obvious because it's an area of contrast. And I didn't really notice that because it wasn't a line of rocks <laughs> or something right. or a shoreline or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And I think um, when the, my days of doing architectural photography and real estate photography was a good lesson in some of that also, because uh, I definitely noticed that, you know, a, a building is a fairly organized, simplified sort of space to photograph in already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even in that space, you know, moving the camera a little distance could totally change. You know, to me standing there, I'm like, it's the same room. You know, whether I stand here or whether I stand, uh, you know, two feet to the right doesn't change the room for me. Right. But that in a photograph could totally change how the room feels in the photograph. And also I noticed that, oh, you know, with the furniture where it is that makes sense for the room when I'm standing here, that looks right to me with my eyes. But in the photograph, it doesn't work. But if I move this chair here within the photograph. I mean, no one would ever put that chair there. It's out in the middle of the room or it's, you know, it's blocking a, you know, a a walkway or something. Right. But by moving that chair into this completely impractical place in real life works in the photo. Yeah. So so having that experience and being able to manipulate it like that was very instructive for me and seeing that, Oh, okay. So when I am out, out there, um, that, yeah, moving around just because it's a great looking landscape that's spread out in front of me, there is a place I could probably put the camera that is going to translate better in a photograph. Right. And it may not be the you know the place where I would choose to stand if all I wanted to do was take in the view. Right. Yeah, totally. So do you do you um kind of scope things out with your phone or do you use like a comp card or or something like that or do you take a bunch of test shots to kind of figure out how you want to frame when you're, especially when you're in front of a big, large grand landscape. When I, if I'm just hiking, you know, and the camera's in the backpack or it's not with me, I'm just kind of exploring and trying to see what's there. Yeah. I'll pull out the phone's a great tool to just, you know, kind of do some framing and, um, you know, grab some quick reference shots for, you know, remembering later and that kind of stuff. So I do use that a lot in that situation. Sometimes walking around, I'll even go to the old lame, you know, whatever Austin Powers holding right. up my my fingers <laughs> to make a frame with my fingers. Yeah, yes. baby. I'm, it's really nerdy, but I've, yeah. I've been no, known to do that. <laughs> yeah. I usually do um, it with one eye closed too, for some reason. Oh yeah. That, yeah, yeah, that often pr- helps. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But uh, if I've got, 
the camera out and I'm in a shooting mode, a photography mode, then I'm definitely composing in the camera. And, um, you know, these days with the variety of ways that cameras can show us the scene, you know, viewfinders and screens on the back and, um, you know, the ability to compose that way is really useful. And, and I find I go back and forth, you know, I'll just look at the scene with my eyes and then I'll look at what, how the camera's seeing it and try to realize it's like, well, with my eyes, this is what I'm wanting to convey. And then I look through the viewfinder wherever and go, that, that's not what's coming through to the camera. Yeah. So how can I move the camera to hopefully get something that more closely matches what my, uh, you know, kind of what my brain is doing when I just look at the scene? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I've heard you mention that as photographers, we need to be students of light. So what are some important aspects of light that we need as outdoor photographers, we need to take into consideration and spend some time studying and practicing uh, when we're trying to improve our photography? I think, first of all, spending a lot of time outdoors noticing light is, is the number one thing that at least um, works for me. Uh, because I think my, my, my experience is that when people first get into photography and we, they hear, you know, light's important, they're just looking for where is the most light, where's the strongest light. And so that's mm -hmm. why, you know, I think a lot of people feel like, you know, bright, sunny days or, you know, beautiful blue sky, bright, sunny days are optimal for photography, which they can be, but it doesn't have to be that way. But that's just where the, you know, you want lots of light. It needs to be really strong. Everything needs to be lit up as much as possible. And, um, so yeah, that's where I think I see a lot of people photographing in really strong front lit sort of situations where everything is bright or they'll go to, you know, in the forest, Oh, there's that ray of sun that's coming in and it's just illuminating something. And it's the brightest thing in the forest. So that's where I'm photographing. Mm -hmm. But photography, is, the way cameras interact with light is much more subtle and nuanced than I think how we see it. Mm -hmm. And it's that really subtle nuanced lighting that for me works best in photographs. And it's lighting that I think a lot of us just are not used to identifying or, or realizing is there. Cause a lot of times I'll talk to people and say, Oh, look at the light right there. It's so great. And they're looking like, I don't see any light there. You know, what are you talking about? And it's just a subtle gradient, you know, gradation between some things are slightly less dim than other things, you right. know, but there is that soft, smooth gradation of light that's there. And it's that subtlety that really works in a photograph. And it's those kinds of things. So noticing, um, other, you know, types of light, learning to notice types of light that aren't just really intense direct light, mm -hmm. learning to notice variations in color of light. You know, that's mm -hmm. a thing that I think people just lights light. What do you mean? It's just, it's all the same, but to notice that, you know, that in the shadows light can be one whole color versus out in direct sunlight or at a sunset or in the snow versus in the green forest. I mean, mm -hmm. the light is always different colors, um, noticing direction of light, that that's so important. You can be standing in one place and photograph, you know, in, in you know, towards the sun, the, whatever the light source is, usually the sun. Right. And without changing your position towards the sun makes one photograph 
at 90 degrees to the sun. So you've got side light changes the photograph and then turning, a, you know, so the sun is at your back. So it's directly illuminating the thing in front of you, changes it again. And whether the sun's up high in the sky or down low, whether it's being filtered by clouds, um, whether there's spotlighting and, you know, areas of both light and shadow, uh, all of those things are things that when you start talking about people go, Oh, I didn't realize, I mean, I just thought it's either light or it's dark, you know, right. <laughs> either the sun's out or it's not. Right. Exactly. And so learning to, to see and recognize all of those subtle variations in light in, in nature, and then also realizing where those things will, um, you know, how those are going to work with the photo that you're taking, because mm -hmm. not all light works in all situations and certain light is is great in one situation and not so great in another. So learning all those things. Yeah. So a lot of people put, you know, emphasis on light as we're talking about, you know, different qualities, direction, angle of light and all that. And, and then there's good light and chasing the light and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like there's not enough attention put on the role of shadows and the slight differences in tonal qualities, like you were sort of alluding to before, where it's just very soft changes in light so could you talk about the importance of shadows and how they actually shape how we perceive light and, and how we can be trying to pay more attention to them? That's a really good point. And yeah, it's essential because all light and no shadow is not an interesting photograph in most situations. And that kind of goes back to that front lighting situation I was talking about, where if the light source is behind you, and what you're photographing is just being lit directly from the front, you get very little shadow. Yeah. And when something is just in, everything across the scene is in even equal lighting, uh, it tends to be non-dynamic, very static. Um, and it also, in an image, doesn't have that sense of volume and depth and dimension because it's the interplay of light and shadow that gives us that. Mm. Um you know, the Italian term from the Renaissance painters is chiaroscuro, which is basically an Italian word for shading. And, you know, if you're a good artist, just with a, you know, a pencil and a piece of paper, you can shade so that a three-dimensional ball comes out of that, you know, sheet of paper. It's not, right. it's two-dimensional, but just the interaction of light and dark. It's not even real light and shadow. It's the appearance of light and shadow with white paper and, you know, black um, pencil lead. Yeah. But it makes a three-dimensional object appear on that flat piece of paper. And it's the same in our photographs. So having variation of light and shadow is what creates dimension in our photographs. So something further away from the camera that's in light versus something closer to the camera that's in shadow creates the feeling that, ah, oh, that thing's far away out there. There's this distance between where we are and where that is. Mm -hmm. um, a tree trunk that's completely front lit looks like a flat rectangle. But if it's side lit so that one side is in shadow and the other side is in more light, now it becomes a cylinder. It all of a sudden has volume. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, shadow with light for those reasons is really important. Yeah. Also shadow creates um, compositional elements. Uh, you know, a lot of times when we talk about leading lines, for example, um, 
we're looking for a, a physical line, you know, like where's the creek, where's the tree branch, where's the log, mm-hmm. but you know, a shadow, the edge of something, uh, an area between light and dark can be a leading line, or it can be any other element of composition that if the light changes, that whole composition now has changed. Right. And um, also I think, you know, shadow creates mystery, shadow creates variation. One of my favorite um, situations to photograph in is when you've got kind of a broken overcast sky and the landscape has pools of light and shadow Mm -hmm. because of, you know, it's the shadows of the clouds. Um, But to me that just adding that, you know, instead of, it's the same exact scene, but just variation of going from areas of light to areas of shadow totally transforms the image. And that's really when you go back to the early days of, you know, darkroom photography, that's what dodging and burning was all about. Right. It's like, yeah. how do we create more um, juxtaposition between light and shadow in our images? Well, let's deliberately make some areas lighter and some areas darker. Right. So, yeah, I think in all those reasons, shadow gets a sh- gets short change and we should be talking about shadow just as much as light. Yes, I totally agree. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, when you were when you were describing it, I was recalling one of your images from the Rapa Nui Islands with of the mm-hmm. statues there, where mm-hmm. shadow was playing a very important compositional element. And without the shadow that the statues were casting, it would have been a completely different type of composition. Exactly, and that's a, I mean that's a great example of that idea of you know the interplay of light and shadow being part of that composition, you know, yeah. um, that particular image you're talking about, it was at night, it was moonlight. And so it was like a seven minute long exposure that I did, which allowed the clouds to create this amazing streaming pattern across the sky. Right. And then those shadows, you know, the foreground, there was nothing in the foreground. It was just ground. There was no, there was nothing to really yeah. <laughs> other than just some grass. Yeah. But because the shadows, that the moon was casting from those statues kind of mimic on the ground, the same lines and direction as the clouds, even though the shadows may be, you know, you've got the, the Moai statue, which are spectacular. You've got this moonlight and this crazy streaming clouds. You would think the shadows are the least important element of that photograph. And yet they end up being probably the most important element. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. And another, another image of yours that I really love is, um, the psychedelic Deddy Foss, mm-hmm. uh, one, which isn't light and shadow so much as tonal differences. And I'll link to the, both of these photos in the show notes so that people can check them out. But I was wondering if you could describe briefly, you know, what was going on in that photograph and how you were able to, you know, create that composition where you had this contrast of whatever was going on in the foreground there. And then you've got the waterfall in the back. Yeah. What was happening in that photo? <laughs> yeah. It's, that's it's a, really mesmerizing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I was mesmerized when I got there. It's it funny that yeah, Dedefoss's giant waterfall in the Northeast part of Iceland. And it's, uh, it's actually when I was in Iceland, one of my things in the last bunch of years has been uh, having less interest in photographing things that have been photographed a ton already. Yeah. And this was one of those places, you know, it's in a, it's in movies and there's tons of photos of it and it's kind of a tourist destination, even though it's in a part of Iceland that not as many people get to. But when we went there, I'm like, I definitely want to see this waterfall. It's something like, I don't know, the second biggest waterfall in Europe or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, I I definitely want to see this, but I'm probably not going to even photograph it. And it was a 
dead overcast, gray, dreary Iceland day. And yeah. um, so I was like, yeah, it's not going to be that anything that interesting anyway today. And then when I showed up and s- when I got there and saw the snow and ice patterns that are in that photograph, immediately, like, I've never seen anything like that before. And okay, yeah. definitely I have to photograph this. Yeah. And what it is, it's just, I think, um, this kind of working it through that makes sense in my mind is that that giant waterfall is spewing out spray, you know, 24 seven, just mist coming off of it, massive amounts. And in the Icelandic winter, uh, which we were there in the spring, um, it goes through periods of freezing when that, that mist from the waterfall is just freezing on the ground, kind of like a, almost a snow making machine at a ski area. Right. You know, the, the, the artificial snow. So it's laying down this white layer of frozen fog that builds up, however, you know, an inch or two, but then they'll get these periods of intense winds and there's all this volcanic dirt around there, which then blows this dark volcanic dust across the top of the the ice layer. And then you just alter that all winter long, you know, ice, dust, ice, dust, ice, dust. And then the spring, as it starts to variably melt out, you get different, um, amounts of, you know, layers of ice and dust exposed. And it's kind of like if you ever have one of those gobstoppers that, you know, the candies, the, oh, yeah. the, the big candy balls that have all the layers in them and you lick yes. them and then you see the layers starting. To come. It's kind of like that, only it's only black and white is all it is. Right. Wonderful swirly pattern. The light wasn't interesting, but I'm like, there's got to be something here. So, yeah, the the actual raw file of that shot is very flat, very kind of lifeless. It has some wonderful patterns in it. I wanted to not just have just the patterns. I wanted to give it some reference to the waterfall. So there's that little bit of, um, you know, you see a hint of the waterfall, not enough to even know what waterfall it is, but just that there's something else there yeah, that has motion to it. And uh, then a lot of the effect of that, is in my developing and we go back to the dodging and burning because it was also flat, but by bringing in contrast that brings the contrast of the lights and darks, and then also some creative dodging and burning so that there is some, what it feels like variation in lighting between mm-hmm. light and shadow. Yeah. Um, kind of all work together for that. Yeah. It just, it's so fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you described it uh, for us because I, I was like, what is going on? What is going on? Yeah. You know, it's such a phenomenon. And, um, But what I also love about it is that you've got two elements. You've got the waterfalls. You're using a long exposure, so you're blurring the water. So obviously that's identifiable and and it's movement. But then the ice, dusty snow stuff that's melting out and all this, it's a static object, but it has a lot of movement to it, you know? It feels like it's moving also, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just really cool. Yeah, it was was really... And again, it's one of those finds where I wasn't expecting it. I didn't go there for that photograph. Um, And it was just a joy to find. And it was a joy to figure out, okay, so back to that thing of like, so I'm going to point my camera at this, but what is it about this that I want to take a photograph? And it's not a waterfall and it's not even snow and dirt. You know, it's about the motion and the differences, kind of the juxtaposition between kind of the vertical soft motion of that, the waterfall with the long exposure. And then this more, yeah, hard edged pattern that does feel, you know, like there's motion in it and they're at different planes to each other. And yeah. Yeah. So then it became, okay, so what is really attracting me about this scene? And it's not a waterfall. 
And then, okay, it's, it's those elements and those weird kind of mind bending, um, things that I was experiencing looking at it. And it's like, how do I make the photograph about those things? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great example. Mm. So let's segue a little bit and talk a little bit about, you know, you're known as the Photoshop guru educator on YouTube. You, you provide tons of tutorials on how to use Photoshop, which are just fantastic. I highly recommend everyone check them out if they haven't yet. And so in landscape photography, I mean, Photoshop is such a powerful tool. There's you can do all kinds of editing in there. But two processes that I feel like a lot of landscape photographers use or would like to use because they hear a lot of people talk about them are uh, luminosity masks and uh, multiple exposure blending. So I was wondering if we could talk briefly about about those. For listeners who have heard of these concepts but not haven't yet learned them, for luminosity masks, can you first define what a what luminosity is and then... Uh, we don't necessarily need to go into all the details of masking because that can get long. But what effects does luminosity masking provide in the editing process and why would you choose to use it or not? Great questions. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, let's start with the luminosity masking idea. So basically what's going on in one of the things that Photoshop's so powerful at uh, other editing software has developed over time that has these capabilities. But the reality is that Photoshop still is the, is kind of the gold standard for this is what I call localized. I don't call it people call <laughs> localized adjustments. So, you know, you can adjust a photo across the whole photo, a global adjustment. So you make the whole photo brighter, or the whole photo darker or whatever you do to it. That's a global adjustment. But in Photoshop working with masks, you can apply adjustments to very localized areas of the image. So if you just want to work with exposure or color or contrast of a particular area of the image or a particular element of the image, mass and selections in Photoshop give you very powerful ways to do that. So that's just masking in general. Now, you can create a mask based on lots of things. You can paint a mask with a paintbrush, just kind of freehand paint it. You could draw a circle around something, and then that circle becomes your mask. Um, but you can also do masks that are kind of a little more um, refined or sophisticated than that. And sometimes those simple masks, like just hand painting a mask or making a circle and blurring it and making that your mask, those are exactly what you need for a particular adjustment. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do those. Those are actually what I use most often. But sometimes um, you may want to make adjustments to a particular tone within the image or a range of tones within the image. Well, how do you paint where the tones are? Or how do you create a, a selection? You know, how do you draw a line around tones? Right. And that's where luminosity masks come in. So luminosity has lots of meanings depending on what you're talking about. But in image editing, the luminosity just comes down to the luminosity variable comes down to how bright the pixels are. So black would be no luminosity and white would be 100% luminosity. And then you have all these shades of gray between black and white. And each pixel gets its own brightness value, its own luminosity value. And so any image... If you just turn, if you take all the, the hue and the saturation, which are the two other things, pixels only have three bits of information. So hue, the color, saturation, how saturated the color is, and luminance, how bright the pixel is. So each pixel 
is made up of three bits of information. And with those three bits of information times millions of pixels, you make a photograph. Mm -hmm. But it really comes down to just those three things. Well, if you take out the hue and the saturation components from each of the pixels, you're, all you're left with is the brightness component, which are whites, blacks, and shades, different shades of gray. So essentially, you end up with a black and white image. And that, those are the luminosity values. And now if you can use those luminosity values as a mask, everywhere the pixels are light or white, you know, the way masking works in Photoshop will get the adjustment. Mm -hmm. And the darker the pixel values become in the mask, all the way down to black, the less those pixels get the adjustment. And whereas when you reach black, they're getting no adjustment. So luminosity masks allow you to apply adjustments based on how bright areas are in the image. Or you can flip it and make the darks the areas that get targeted by the adjustments. So you can now target adjustments to dark tones. You can uh, target adjustments to light tones or even midtones. And you can modify these masks in all different sort of ways to target adjustments that would be impossible to make your own mask for. And they're seamless. And what I mean by that is one of the things we don't want in our adjustments is for anyone to be able to see where the adjustment is. Right. So, you know, if, if you, if you make, you know, you make a hard circle um, mask and you make the adjustment, it might look good inside the circle, but you see the edge of the circle. You go, aha, I see what you did there. I see the edge of your adjustment. Right. Well, luminosity masks feather perfectly with all the tones within the image. So there are no visible edges. So whatever adjustments you're doing with them, they're always imperceptible to the viewer. They, mm -hmm. they, they see the image. They don't see the adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> I probably just didn't make any sense at all, but that's the basis of what luminosity masks are. Yeah. No, it made perfect sense. Yeah. I, I've been using them now for a couple of years, I would say, and it, it really changed how I approach my editing process with that micro adjustment. Like you're saying, it's like the, the surgeon's scalpel versus big global changes, like you were saying earlier. And it really does make a huge difference to be able to not just makes an area brighter or darker, but you can do color adjustments. You can do any of those adjustments in Photoshop you can do with luminosity masks. And the, ma the mask itself is just telling Photoshop where to apply those adjustments in the Where photo. that adjustment's going to go. Exactly. Yeah. And so to, to your point about color, yeah, I think a lot of people think, well, if it's a luminosity mask and yeah, you're only working with image brightness. Um, but like you said, so if you s use a luminosity mask to select or, or mask for all the bright tones, then you could warm up all your bright tones. And then you could use a different mask that's targeted for the shadows and cool down all your dark tones. And so this gives you a very elegant and seamless way to do um, split toning, you know, right. warming highlights and cooling shadows. Yeah. Uh, and on and on and on. The, the, you know, the, the applications for them just go on and on. And I just will point out that when all this kind of started, luminosity masks were the kind of the main thing that people knew about. But those other two pixel values that I talked about, so... We we call the the entire category pixel based masks, of which luminosity are pixel based masks based on the pixel luminance values. But if you make a mask that's based on the colors in, in the image, so you could select a color, those pixel values, you can now have color masks. Mm, 
Yeah. And you can also do masks that are based on saturation, not what color it is, but how saturated the color it is. All right. How saturated the color is. So you can create a mask that targets saturation. Wow. And those cool. are all pixel based masks. And like I said, really complex masks that would be impossible to create by hand. Right. And just quickly, how does luminosity affect color? So if you were making adjustments to luminosity, would you see any perceptible change in, in color? Does it play a role? It does. So in general, <laughs> as you um, increase luminosity or brightness and you're not changing hue and saturation at all, it tends to make color appear less saturated. And if you're darkening luminosity without changing hue and saturation at all, uh, you tend to increase saturation. Uh, Photoshop, by default, adjusts um, all three of those things kind of simultaneously. So if you go in and just make a standard curves adjustment um, you know, to darken or to lighten, Photoshop is also adjusting hue and saturation to try to kind of maintain some sort of balance, but you definitely can add, end up with more saturated colors or less saturated colors that way. Um, but it is possible to divide those out. So you can set a curves adjustment to just affect luminosity only. So it only changes the brightness, doesn't change hue or saturation. Or you can set a curves adjustment to only affect saturation. And so when you do a curves adjustment, all of a sudden the saturation is changing, but the brightness isn't changing. So you right. can separate those out. But um, just by default, light or fo sorry, Photoshop is kind of its algorithms are working with both of those simultaneously. So our challenge as photographers, I guess, then is to look at, you know, the adjustment you're making and realize that there are different elements to that. And it may be a, a luminosity change that you're going for, but it may have affected hue or saturation in a way that you didn't intend. And then how can you be the person to make those choices, not let just Photoshop decide for you? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when do you know when your, your editing process is done after you make all of these changes? I mean, sometimes for me, I'm like, oh yeah, I could spend hours, days, you know, doing these tiny little adjustments, thinking I'm making a progress. And sometimes it doesn't make any difference. And sometimes it makes a massive difference, you know, in, in getting it just, just right, you know, just a certain type of feel. Um, do you have a, a way of knowing when you're done with the process? I, I do. I think it comes down to a lot of how you and I also approach taking photos. It's like kind of you know it when you when you see it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that I have a, a you know a, a way that I could define in words, but um, maybe the best way is uh, so Tony Kuiper, who actually is kind of the he didn't invent luminosity masks, but he's the one who discovered how they could be useful in in um, landscape photography a long, long time ago. And Tony Kuiper always talks about um, when he's editing and I've kind of adopted this is it's just a, a process of asking, what do I think the image needs next? Mm -hmm. And just picking a thing and then working on that thing. And then when you feel good about that, now what do I think it needs next? And picking a thing. And at some point you reach, you reach a place where you're like, I got nothing. <laughs> what do I think it needs next? I, I don't have anything. I mean, I can think of things I could do, but do I feel like it needs it? Yeah. And so I guess that's where I get to is a place where I feel like I just don't feel like it needs anything else, 
But that's usually not the end because if I go away and I do this a lot, I always go away from my photos and come back. Yeah. And a lot of times when I come back, then instantly more things it needs become apparent. And sometimes what becomes apparent that it needs is less of the things I did to it before. Right. <laughs> I need to actually reverse out of some things like, whoa, I went way too far with that. Yeah. But I'm I'm altering images um, all the time. And every time I come back to an image, almost always I see things I, that I now feel like it needs. And, and I think the important thing here is I think people get wrapped up in this idea that there's a right answer to that question. Yeah. And I don't, I'm like, you know, how I did it back then was felt right then, or it was what I could get to with my capabilities then. I feel different now. So I'm not going to say which one's right, but right now I think it needs this. So that's the way I'm going to go with it. And I might reverse that the next time I look at this photo and that's all fine. I'm not trying to go for what's correct. Just what, what do I think in the moment? Yeah. And, um, like we're just been working on, um, some book and calendar projects with photo Cascadia and I had to go back and prepare some images from 15 years ago for publication and yeah, my immediate response at looking at some of those old images was like, oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that needs some work again. So I'm never done. Yes, totally agree. When I go back to some of my early, early photos and I, I look at them, I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah. And thankfully, you know, you can, can you know, re-edit them and it's like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. I, I can salvage something here. And maybe you know, if compositionally it, it still works, I can certainly edit it better and and uh, yeah, I think um, there were times when I looked back at some of those photos and thought, gosh, what was I thinking? That's not at all what the landscape looked like. <laughs> right, <know>? right. <laughs> it's easy to overdo but I, it. But again, I think um, that's okay. And you have to, you know, be okay with that too. Is like at the at that time, that based on what I, my, the, you know, the skill set that I had and whatever my, you know, my internal dialogue was like, that's where it was at that time. It's not wrong. Right. I don't need to feel bad about that. Right. Um, yeah. I just want to do it a little differently now. And yeah. I think for me, photography is very fluid like that. And, you know, not a lot of rules and boundaries. It's about intentions and feelings and that kind of stuff. And I, I see people get bogged down trying to identify absolutes. Mm -hmm. What's right? What should I do here? Yeah. What's the right way to do this? Um, and and I, I, I think that that's maybe the biggest blockage or or anxiety creator that for people in photography is feeling like there's a right way to do this, and I just don't know what it is. Right. I got to be in the somehow. I got to get the insider information so I know what the right thing is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That can be really limiting, you know, because it, it prevents you from experimenting and trying new things. And I, I found that, you know, if I push myself to make crappy images on purpose, <laughs> sometimes I can get more creative in my approach and think of things and discover ways of doing things that I wouldn't have thought otherwise if I was too strict about like, this has to be right, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's good to make mistakes. <laughs> I agree. So we didn't talk about multiple exposures, but could we talk just briefly about, you know, there's different types of multiple exposures. There's focus stacking, there's exposure blending for a high dynamic range scene and or uh, stitching panoramas. Those are the ones that are coming quickly to mind right now. But when you're out in the field, I'm curious, what are you thinking about when you're like, you know what, this is going to be better if I do a multiple exposure blend and so that you know to 
basically get those assets wire out there so that you can create that final image versus I can do this in a single frame. That is comes down to having lots of experience and uh, you know taking photos and finding out what works and what doesn't work and also knowing your specific equipment that you're using mm-hmm. because it's not uh, a constant for everyone. You know, there's different lenses, different lenses have different capabilities and characteristics, different cameras have different, you know, um, sensor qualities and dynamic range and, you know, noise capabilities and all that kind of stuff. So, but photography is a game of limitations and compromises and just the physics of how cameras work there are limitations to what you can photograph in a single photo that we don't necessarily have, you know, that we don't experience um, on a, you know, when we're just looking at something. So knowing when you're bumping up against your camera's limitations and yet those limitations aren't going to allow you to create the image that you can conceive and conceptualize just fine. And then knowing, you know, what, are the, you know, what's the workaround for that? What's the loophole? Yeah. So for example, the loophole is cameras and they're better than they were, but they still have a limited dynamic range. You can have a contrast ratio, contrast range in, in nature where the brightest thing and the darkest thing are too bright and too dark to, to get all in one frame. So that's a limitation of your camera. You can see that scene just fine. So the workaround is you take two different exposures or multiple exposures, and then you figure out how to bring those, all those um, materials together in developing somehow. Or depth of field is a physical limitation. You know, lenses have a limited depth of field. You can get a lot of depth of field, but you can still get something close enough to your lens and far enough away from your lens. And no matter what aperture you set, you're not going to get everything sharp. And if that's your goal, and you know, okay, that's a limitation here is that the composition I've set up, there is no aperture that will do that. Right. Uh, or if I use the aperture that will do that, I know that on this lens that I have, because I've tested it, that at F18 or F20, it produces a, an image that's too soft and I'm not happy with it. So I can't use that aperture. Okay. So what's the loophole? And that's okay. Well, I can take multiple focus points at a, a big, a wider aperture that is good and then bring those together using different methods in post-production to create that depth of field that I could see and that I wanted for my photograph. So I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question exactly, but, but I guess yeah, right. yeah. where I'm getting to is that the first step of that is knowing what are the limitations of just cameras and what are the limitations specifically of your equipment? You know, mm-hmm. what are the boundaries of what will work? And then when you run into situations that cross those boundaries, then, okay, so what are my options here? How do I capture the correct raw materials? And then how do I bring them together afterwards? And that just up, ups the, uh, obviously the difficulty level, both only in, uh, not only in capturing the images, but also developing them. Yeah. But it is possible to, to get that image that you're envisioning. There was one other point I was going to make there, which was basically, uh, Oh, and that's it, is that when it comes to those techniques, I only go to them when nothing else that is simpler will work. Yeah. I see people out there in not high dynamic range light bracketing photos like crazy, and they're shooting seven exposures 
you know, in a scene that easily fits with great quality in a single exposure. So they're just, you know, kind of spraying that method. I'm just going to use it all the time just in case. Right. And then well, I'm not, yeah, because I really don't know what the dynamic range capabilities are. So I'm just going to always do it kind of as insurance. Right. And I don't really know what the depth of field limits of my lens and apertures are. So I'm just going to focus stack everything. Right. And that way I've got it in case I need it. And I'm always going to do this. And so pretty soon for every photo you take, you've got, you know, five focus points and seven exposures and whatever. And then none of it can actually be brought together into a working photograph for a lot of people. So, right. Yeah. If you can get it in one shot, that's my first, first go-to that yeah. always choose that first. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that the point that you're making of, of stressing the understanding your gear and the limitations of that by, by running experiments, testing things out, and then you kind of have an idea of, okay, when I'm shooting at this aperture with this lens at this focal length, this is my depth of field that I'll generally have. And if I'm going to be focusing on a foreground element that's closer than this, then I'm going to need to focus stack that image or something like that. And just sort of have, have that in the back of your head so that um, you can apply it if needed. Otherwise, just enjoy taking one one photo, <laughs> not having to have so many files for one composition if, if it's not necessary. If it's not necessary, exactly. And the reality is, is, you know, we're so lucky in this period that the way the technology has gone in the last bunch of years is more and more we, you know, the cameras and the lenses and everything are so incredible in their capabilities is that almost always you can get it all in one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Lightning round. Okay. Yes. <laughs> being, um, being succinct and to the point maybe isn't one of my strong suits, but I will do my best. Okay. <laughs> so you spend a lot of time camping and out in the back country. So do you have a favorite camp meal or snack? It's a guilty pleasure that a lot of people are probably going to, but mountain house free, just freeze dried, um, meals yes. i love them they're delicious <laughs> super high in sodium anyway yeah i love yeah. the uh the ice cream sandwich things uh yes they the, are like so the, good <laughs> they're like, the, the astronaut one that's yes, freeze right yeah yeah exactly i mean it's i don't have a sweet tooth my my downfall are chips and anything salty and crunchy but for some reason those freeze-dried ice cream sandwiches get me every time yeah, I, I can totally see that. I think my thing with the, and it doesn't have to be Mountain House, just those freeze-dried meals in general, is that yeah. I am not a very talented cook. And you put me out on a backpacking trip and what I'm going to cook is, you know, it'll keep me going, but it's not. Right. But the idea that I just add water to this thing and it's way better than anything that I would have come up with, right. is um, <laughs> that's appealing to me. Yes, exactly. Um, so what's one piece of gear that you can't live without that's not your photography gear? Oh, well, okay. I, 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 I'd love to go with something small because there's all kinds of little small things that are, but I, I have to say that my, my, uh, my road trip, you know, camping rig, which I've had many over the years, but being able to be out on the road and have everything you need to live for days or weeks out on a photography trip, um, that's, that's the piece that makes those road trips really um, great. <laughs> yes. So what's your current rig? My current rig is kind of like everybody else. Um, 
a sprinter van, a, a you know sprinter oh, nice. camper van, um, yeah. which I've had a couple of years. Oh, maybe coming up on no, I think coming up on two years. It's been excellent. Like I said, I had, I've always had camping rigs of some sort, really dirt bag ones back in the early days. This one is for me the nicest thing I've had. A lot of people would still call it dirt bagging, but um, <laughs> has everything I need, and I can be out for you know, weeks and months and, uh, it's all off grid and it's great. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Do you prefer the term post-processing, developing or photo editing and why? I prefer, and I've advocated for the term developing for years. Um, I, photo editing would be my second and yeah, post-processing is my least favorite term. I don't, I don't have anything against it, but to me, processing sounds like something you do in a factory or to chicken or something <laughs> where I, I love the visual that, you know, that our photographs develop, you know, yeah. that they, they, they kind of come to life. So I like developing. Yeah, no, I like that. I remember you mentioning something like that when we were in Acadia. So it's stuck in my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a physical grad ND or a digital grad ND? Digital. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, the less stuff I have to fiddle with in the field so I can just focus on creating the photo, capturing the image and whatever I need to do is fine. Yeah. The more stuff I have to, which pocket did I put it in and where does it, what filter, what holder does it have to go in? And, you know, what happens if I drop it? All of that stuff that gets in the way of my experience taking photos. Yeah. No, I hear that. Um, what do you like to do in your downtime? Oh, I, that's a great, I don't know. I feel like I'm fortunate. I feel like so much of my life, it just is downtime. Even the uptime is still stuff I would do in my downtime, but things that are not photography related in my downtime. Uh, still go back to all my love of just outdoor adventure and exploration. So, you know, I'm hiking, skiing, backcountry skiing, mountain biking, uh, mountaineering. I haven't rock climbed in a while just because, um, it's a sad sight to see an old guy rock climb these days, <laughs> but all that stuff. Uh, that's what I love to do. That's great. Um, what's something that people would be surprised to know about you? Hmm. I, I don't know that I'm a very surprising person, but the one that always comes to mind that a lot of people know it, but when they do hear it, it seems to be kind of a novelty is that um, for several years uh, I played bagpipes in a bagpipe band oh nice you know the full kilt <laughs> and the whole get up and everything and we marched in parades and we'd go out on saint patrick's day or on uh which is weird because highland pipes are scottish but for some reason they in this country we still play them on saint patrick's day right which is an irish thing um but like new year's eve and fourth of july all this stuff and um it was a really fun thing to do and yeah and my name is Bagshaw, so Bagshaw right. Bagpipes seems to kind of work. But yeah, oh, very few great. people who know me in this life can imagine me walking around in a kilt with bagpipes. Yes, exactly. It's a great, great image. <laughs> um, okay, so final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Hmm. It's just being out in nature, the landscape. and. I'm such a visual person. And so for me, most of that connection is visual. You know, the things that I'm seeing that I'm looking at, 
what's going on with the weather, what's going on with the light. I mean, there are other aspects to those experiences, but for me, I think my strongest sensual in, uh, sensual input is what I see. I'm very drawn to looking at things. Um, and so that's my connection is just being outside and watching what's going on around me. Yeah. Nice. Well, Sean, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. I appreciate you taking the time and sharing so much goodness with our listeners. And I understand that you're going to offer the podcast listeners 20% off your courses and the TK panel um, with the code outdoor EXP20. So outdoor EXP20. And I'll put that in the show notes. So that's easy to find. So thank you for that. That is great. And uh, if anyone is interested in learning more about developing how to develop their images better, uh, definitely check out Sean's tutorials and his courses. If, if people did want to learn more about your work and your photography, what, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, my website is outdoorexposurephoto.com. Um, that's kind of a long thing to remember. So you can just do a Google search for Sean Bagshaw and that'll come up. Photo Cascadia website, photocascadia.com is great to see what the, you know, what my the team of photographers that I'm uh, really fortunate to be part of is, is doing, of course, all the social media stuff. I spray out on that as well. So, um, so you can find me in all those places and yeah, that, that, um, that's a non-expiring code. So at whatever point in the future, someone might be listening to this, they can use that code. Um, I run various specials from time to time, but that's one that's kind of their constant, uh, for special things like your, your listeners. Yeah. So great. Well, I hope people take advantage of that and I'm sure they'll get a lot of value out of it. So thank you. Uh, very, very welcome. Very welcome. And I will just point out, I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, uh, I'm trying, I try to do two or three new courses per year. Mm-hmm. That's about what I can handle being a one man operation. But I, uh, with my photo Cascadia friend, Zach Schnepp, we've just put out a course that we've been wanting to make for years and people have been asking for it for years. And it's a course on printing. Oh, nice. And how, um, helping people, just more consistently and create prints they are, they're happy with and to kind of demystify printing. Cause we really feel like people spend a lot of time and there's a lot of information on how to take photos and how to develop photos. And then the third piece that I think is a re- really important piece, the printing piece kind of gets short change. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I, I do get a lot of questions about printing and I don't do my own printing, so I don't have a whole lot of experience to be able to share with people on that. So that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Sean. It's been really great having you on the show and I hope we get to see each other in person again soon. Thank you, Brenda. I've had a great time. You're awesome. You're doing a great job on this podcast and thanks for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sean. And again, you can find out more about his photography, workshops, and video tutorials at outdoorphotoexposure.com and also the work he does in collaboration with Photo Cascadia at photocascadia.com. And I highly recommend checking out his YouTube channel for some excellent instructional videos. And don't forget to use the coupon code OUTDOOREXP20 for 20% off his paid tutorials. Again, thank you, Sean, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you, and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to dive into my backlog of undeveloped photographs and also to check out 
John's new video course on printing as well, because that's something I want to be spending more time doing. Just a quick note, if you want to learn more about the different types of multiple exposure blending, which Sean and I just glossed over a little bit today, then be sure to check out last week's Tidbit Tuesday, which was episode 60, where I provide more information and context while answering a listener question. All of the links and resources mentioned today are in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 61. And if you haven't checked out the podcast website yet, it's where you can go to listen to the episodes, follow or share the podcast with one click, find all the detailed show notes and profiles on our guests. You could ask a question for Tidbit Tuesday, and you can support the show through a buy me a coffee link or by leaving a rating and review. And thank you to everyone who has shown their support so far. I truly appreciate it. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll give you a practical photography tip and or answer your submitted questions. So until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.